Good evening. How's everybody doing? You all right? Some of you are okay and some of you aren't sure. My name's John and uh, we don't have time for me to tell you my life story, so we're going to talk about somebody else's story for a little while. It's a lot more interesting than mine anyway, but you'll get to hear about part of mine as we go. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open to Luke chapter 16, because that's where we're going to be reading from tonight. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and, and you're actually paying attention enough to know that we've skipped over verse 18, we're going to come back to that. Talks about divorce and all sorts of stuff like that. And so Mark said, I really want to talk about that. And I said, fine, that's yours. You can have it. So tonight we're going to be talking about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. So we're going to, we're going to read a little bit and um, then we'll talk. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores, and the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far, and he said to Lazarus at his side, and, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here's a question for you tonight, and that's this. Is God's judgment of sin fair? Is God's judgment of sin fair? When I was in seventh grade, um, I tend to think I was a pretty normal red-blooded American boy, and that is I cared more about doing boy things than I did doing girl things, which is pretty much what you're supposed to do when you're in seventh grade and you're a boy. I think I was also pretty much a normal red-blooded American boy in that I cared more about doing boy things than I cared about girls until I met a girl named Laura DeLong. I got taken to a, a lock-in, and if any of you grew up in a youth ministry, I didn't. I didn't grow up in a church, really, and I never had really been to many church functions, but a friend invited me to this thing called a lock-in, and basically what a lock-in was a long time ago was they would take a bunch of students and they would lock them in one place, which was about the dumbest idea some youth minister ever came up with, because all you did was put a whole bunch of hormones in one place all night, which to me is probably never a good idea, but it was that place that I ran into Laura along. I was walking through this big room of pool tables and stuff about this size, and there's about 150 so kids in this room. I was a seventh grader, okay? First time I'd ever been in a youth group, been around this many students, sensory overload. I'd come from an elementary school into this thing. I just started school and been there a week and now I'm at this lock-in and I walk in and I remember in the background, give you some indication here, I'm 43 years old. So when I was in seventh grade, 1976, so the music playing in the background was like this, and I came into the room and as I turned the corner, there comes Laura along and it was this moment. Because literally the crowd split and Barbie walked through the door. And when I say Barbie, she was all of Every bit of you could pick a Barbie doll and make her into a real person. It was Laura Long. Now the, the night kind of went like this. When if you remember seventh grade, something you remember that far back that 
especially you guys, it's painful, but you, you kind of find out from someone else's friend that someone else kind of likes you, that kind of thing. And you really don't talk to them for seven hours. You exchange notes and comments. We didn't have cell phones there, so you couldn't text them or any of that kind of stuff. It was like word of mouth and then actually like written paper. And then at the end of the night, about four o'clock in the morning, when we're delirious with, with drunk stupor of being up all night, you actually end up sitting by each other and we talked a little bit and we kind of dangled feet, that kind of thing. And so the night ended with me getting her phone number. I call her on Sunday. So Saturday night, I call her on Sunday and we talk a little bit, all of five minutes. And the only reason we talked for five minutes, it took me that long to get my name out and tell her what was going on and who I was. And so the next day we show up at school. Now, I knew her at school a little bit. I'd, I'd kind of seen her face, but I, that was the first time I'd really ever been close to her. And, and I remembered the class that she had. I came out of this class right before lunch and I had a health class. And I remember that down the hall she would come out of this class. So I'm thinking... This is my chance. We're going to come out of this class. We're going to see each other. I don't know what I was going to do, but we're going to walk out of this class and we're going to continue our romance, our toward romance that had begun that night, two nights before. I come out of the class and I'm walking down the hall. And as I come out of the hall, I see Laura. Uh, you know, she comes out of her classroom. And but next to her comes Greg Cole. Now, Greg Cole was a Marlboro man in seventh grade. Greg had I had like a baby's face. You know, I still do. I had like a baby's butt face. In other words, I had no hair on my lip. Some of you guys that had mustaches in seventh grade, I hated you. Greg Cole looked like the Marlboro man. He had lip hair, you know, and his wasn't that little kind that all my Mexican friends had. And I can say that because I'm half Hispanic, so don't come down on me. But all my Mexican friends had had like hair lip here, like in fourth grade. OK, I was my, my half Mexican from my dad's side of the family is like Indian. So we get no hair. And so we, I had nothing here. He had hair in his chest in seventh grade. And this is 1976, so he had a shirt on probably like I do right now because it was in them before it went retro, you know, except he had no T-shirt on underneath and that little stuff coming out here, and he had bell bottoms on with sandals kind of like I do. And he came around the corner, and he was 5'9", weighed about 145, and I know this because we he had pummeled me several times in fifth grade and sixth grade. I was 5 feet tall, weighed 95 pounds in seventh grade. So I did what any red-blooded American boy would do, and that is I ducked into the nearest room as we came around the corner because when I saw him, he was holding Laura's hand. And the only thing I was thinking is this. If she tells him what happened Saturday night, he's going to kill me. And so I hid into the classroom as fast as I could. Flash forward seven years. End of our senior year, maybe six years. End of our senior year, we're in a journalism class. This is the last week of school. And I'm sitting in this journalism class, and Laura DeLong's in this class. And this journalism class was a two-hour class. That was half, first half was journalism. The second half was a yearbook. How many of y'all were in yearbook in high school? Anybody? Nobody? No, raise your hand. Admit it. Come on. Raise your hand. Come on. I want you to see everybody hated you, okay? I just want you to know that everybody hated you because all your friends were in the yearbook, like 19 pictures, and the rest of us had two, maybe one, and you were probably a cool person or you weren't on the yearbook staff, but I know any better. I was in that class. Half the class was yearbook and half the class was journalism. I was with the journalism geeks, all right? And so Laura DeLong comes in. We got our yearbooks, by the way. This is the last week of school. We get our yearbooks, our annuals, whatever you call them. We get them. And you remember that thing that everybody did where they'd pass the yearbook around and you'd sign it and do that kind of stuff and you'd write really dumb things on it like stay the same, don't change, love you, and really mean all that kind of stuff. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my four or five signatures in my yearbook, you know, and, and Laura DeLong comes up and sits next to me. Now, we had talked over the course of the six years following the seventh grade romance we had talked a few times, but we were in different social circles altogether. She she was like One Tree Hill. I was kind of like Napoleon Dynamite. And so we were in different <laughs> social worlds altogether, totally different. For those of you guys that are into sports, don't watch TV, she was in the major league. I was like double A. I wasn't in the rookie league. I wasn't that bad because I played basketball, and I actually played varsity basketball my senior year. But I, I just had no social skills. The drum's okay. The djembe's okay. 
Um, I had no social skills, and to this day, my wife will st- still tell you, you know, gosh, it's, it's amazing that you actually, like, have any friends at all, because I really was retarded, and I mean that not, like, duh, I just mean retarded socially. I, could, I didn't know how to talk to people at all. And so I was just really just dumb. And so that we even talked at all, Laura and I, over those six years, was very, very sketchy. She sits down in front of me, still looking like Barbie. Senior year, seventh grade, five feet, 95 pounds. Senior year, I was 5'9 and weighed about 125 pounds. I didn't grow into my man body until I was about 30. Voice changed. I still don't really have a man body, but I didn't grow into what I'm in now until I was about 30. So those of you guys that are still holding out, Peter Brady lives in you. Hang on, man. Just keep hanging and stretching. It'll happen someday. But I'm sitting in this class, and she comes and sits down in front of me, and she says, hey, will you sign my yearbook? And I was like, sure. You know, will you sign mine? So we exchange it because I'll be back in a minute. So she walks off, and from across the class, I hear, hey, John, can I sign your yearbook? I was like, sure. So that goes on. 30 minutes later, she comes back, hands me the yearbook, I hand her hers, and, and I'm kind of, you know, flipping through a few minutes later looking. And I'm looking to see who all over there signed this this. Thing and, and I'm heading through and I get to the cheerleader page, and which is like two pages, by the way, of thousands of pictures of the cheerleaders, which Laura was. She was a head cheerleader, seventh grade, all through senior high and on the yearbook and all that stuff. So I look through there and I realize that like one whole page is signed. Not like one big name, but a long letter. And so I, you know, I go back and I look at it and at the very bottom of it has Laura DeLong's name. So I close it up and do what any red-blooded American boy does at this point. I go to the bathroom. <laughs> I go find a toilet stall. Some of you dudes are going, I've done that before. I go find a toilet stall, and I go in there because I know two things. Nobody's going to bother me in there, and I can read it as long as I want. So I go in there, and I sit down, and I, which is where I go in my house to this day. My kids don't bother me in there for some strange reason. So I go, and I'm sitting there, and I sit down, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm reading. This is basically the summary of this long letter. First thing, hey, I remember when we met in seventh grade. That was fun. That was kind of funny. Yeah. Second thing, she said, I remember in ninth grade when I broke up with Marshall. And you were there kind of talking me off the ledge. And then I remember in 11th grade when I didn't make this and you know, we kind of ran into each other at this place. And then she, she ends kind of with this thought, long, big, long letter. She goes, you were always a really neat guy. I really probably never let you know this, but I had a crush on you for about three years. I wish you would have asked me out. I jumped from the toilet. No! <laughs> Sorry about that. And I said this phrase, it's not fair. It is not Fair. I mean, the whole of my existence was spent retarded with Belle, the beauty, wanting the beast to know that she liked him. And I didn't know. And the only thing my heart could scream at that point as I jumped off the toilet was, it's not fair. Um, I... There's been a few other times in my life, some a little more significant, probably some a little less, that that scream has come out of my heart. I will will bet this, if you're alive and you're breathing, that that scream uh, comes out of your heart at some point in time with various things. And sometimes it has to do with things a whole lot more meaningful than a lard along. But I would bet, just looking around this room, that there are some of you that wonder if you will ever meet. Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright, and it's not fair. I mean, you look at really ugly people that are married, and you think, why them? I'm just being honest. I was 20-something, 7 when I got married, and from 20 to 27, I'm thinking, what's up with that dude? I mean, how does he have, how does he have girlfriends? You know, not realizing how retarded I was around girls was probably a good thing. But, I, I mean, I'm being honest with you. Not, I know some of you think that. I know some of you girls are looking at some girls going, come on. I mean, what, what is up with this? And, and I know something in your heart... There's this thought of it's not fair. 
I know some of you that are married, if, and I saw some of you, there's, there's like a lot of kids in this room, and I watch during worship when worship's going off and kids are screaming. Those of you that don't have kids are doing this. And what it is for you guys, listen, it's birth control. Okay, so just enjoy it when you get around other people's kids because it keeps you from doing dumb things. But when someday if you are married and you have kids, listen, there will be a day that some of you in this room won't be able to have kids. We live in a society because of our sin and because of our broken down bodies that having kids is not just a foregone conclusion. In the church where I am, probably 50% of the married couples have um, difficulty having kids. And it's a, it's a heartbreak and it's a pain. My wife and I spent seven years before we had our first child and went through like three miscarriages. And one of the cries of our heart during that time was it's not fair because I was a youth minister at the time, much like Mark, and there were 16-year-old girls and 14-year-old girls and 13-year-old girls getting pregnant in our youth group. And my thought was this, God, that is not fair. And one of the things that I finally realized over a long period of time is that when I was making the statement it's not fair, what I was really asking was a much deeper question. That was this, are you fair? And I just want to encourage you now as we look at this scripture, because I think God gives us some insight into his character and ours about the whole idea of what's fair. And really to this deeper question, is God fair? So let's look at this a little bit together and we'll talk just a little bit about the fairness of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus has been telling stories, parables, if you will, for, for a while here. It begins in Luke chapter 15 when he, when he starts and he gathers around him a group of sinners and tax collectors and he tells them about the about the sheep that's lost, one of 99. And then he talks about the woman who's lost the coin, and then the son, the two sons. And he goes on from there, and you guys have been going through this for a while, that for about, who knows how long it was, Jesus was telling story after story after story about the character of God, about who God was, what the kingdom was like, and about us. And he gets to this story, and he begins this way. He says, there was a rich man... And he talks about this rich man and his clothes, that he had purple clothes, that he had fine linen, and he ate sumptuously. All things that the people of that day could understand. Purple was always something that had something to do with either nobility, royalty, or someone who had a whole lot of money. The reason they put a purple robe on Jesus was they were mocking his royalty. This picture of a man in a purple robe was somebody for us as Jesus is telling this video. This, I mean, Jesus' parables were videos for his day. And he was giving this video visual to his people. And he was saying, here was this royal person who had fine clothes. And he ate in such a fashion that he always ate more than he needed to eat. And he always ate better than he needed to eat. And he had so much that he didn't know what to do with it. To that end, in Jesus' culture, they would bring people that were in need. And, they would, and the social justice of the day was to take the poor people to the rich people. And you would drop them in the street in certain places where you knew these people would pass and they would beg for alms. And so at this man's gate, it says this man was brought Lazarus, who couldn't carry himself there. It says they had to bring him and put himself there. For some way, maybe he's crippled somehow. And he's, they lay him down there. Look what the scripture says about Lazarus. And as a gate, they laid a poor man. This is verse 20. They laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Pretty picture, huh? Covered with sores. And this is how his life was. He desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. More than the dogs came and licked his sores. There's two words for dog in the, in the New Testament that the, the writers use all the time. One of them is a pet. And the other is, is like the mangy kind of dogs that you see if you get out in the country and you see kind of like a coyotes. You know, the kind that when you see you run. Those kind of dogs. Um, this was the coyote kind of mangy mutt kind of dog. And the reason they're looking the sores of this guy is because they're hungry too. And they're eating this guy's pus. And God has given you a picture of the, of the this pit of despair and the height of just having it all. 
Watch how they deal with each other. The rich man who is supposed to in the culture somewhat do something for this man does nothing. It says that this man's longing just to eat the crumbs that fall off his table. The only friends this poor man has are, his, are these dogs. Then Jesus goes on and he starts talking about what happens next. In verse 22, he says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you are in a lifetime, received your good things, Lazarus, like men are bad things. Now he's comforted and you're in anguish. And besides, there's this great chasm between us fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you can't and those who would come across will not. He starts describing what happens to these two guys after they die. And he gives description of two places. And the first place is a place basically that is described this way. It is a place in the presence of God and it's a place of comfort. To the Jews, the place in the presence of God always had something to do with Abraham. Father Abraham, you've ever sang that little song, was the place of God's presence to the Jews. The bosom of Abraham, that's just always been a funny word to me, but the bosom of Abraham was literally a picture of paradise in the presence of God. And he says this, this man was sitting in the, in the lap of Abraham being comforted. Kind of a picture of life and what we know as in the, this side of the cross is heaven in the presence of God and peace. Then he gives a picture of what's going to be like not in the presence of God. And he gives these three kind of descriptions. One is that there's some real kind of long-term suffering going on. This man says this is a place of torment, not of one time, but the picture is the ongoing, 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 ongoing torment of real suffering ongoing. Second thing he says is this, is that there's, there's definitely a separation here. There's not in the presence of God. Suffering, it's long-term, and there's separation. Now, where are they and what are they talking about? This is important as we talk about what's fair with God. Um, if you saw the movie Gladiator, there was a term in there that was used. Matter of fact, it's the name of the very last song in Gladiator. When he, is, uh, when he dies, if you've ever seen the story, he dies at the very end. And, and as he dies, he goes back into this dream that starts at the beginning of the movie. And he's walking through these fields touching the, touching the, the, the wheat. You remember this scene? And he's kind of going through in the background. There's kind of this Celtic music being played. And the name of that song, the name of that song is specifically called Eliseum. Eliseum. And it's a picture, it's a name for, for this term of a place that the, the pagans looked at as one side of Hades. Now, Hades in the pagans' term, which is this word that's used in the Bible right here, and the Hades in the, in the pagan culture was, was just a place that meant a place of death. It's where dead people went. And there were two parts to Hades. There was Eliseum, which was kind of the picture of heaven for them. And then there was this other word that I can't even begin to pronounce that was kind of hell for them. And when he's talking in Gladiator, he's having this conversation with his friend about where he's going to go to be with his ancestors when he dies. This is the word he used. Well, to the Jewish minds and their mindset, Hades was the same thing. It was a place of death. The word they used in the Hebrew culture in the Old Testament was the word sheol. And every once in a while you hear David in his Psalms write this. You know, matter of fact, this is a real... Uh, Psalm, real popular psalm, where, where David is writing down a prophecy about the, the Messiah, where he says his bones will not see decay, nor will his soul be abandoned to Sheol. Now, Sheol to the Jews was not hell. Remember, this is the equal word to Hades. It was just a place of death where you went when you died. To the Hebrews in Sheol or Hades, there were two places that you went. 
One was the bosom of Abraham. The second one, they didn't have a name for, but Jesus later gave it a name, and he called it Gehenna. And Gehenna was the name of that pit of fireplace outside of Jerusalem where they, where the fire was always burning because it was a waste dump. And it was a place where they burned dead bodies and their trash and all sorts of stuff. And it was the place that Jesus gave the picture to of what hell would be one day. So what's going on in the story? Where are they when he's talking here? Let me, let me tell you one thing first that I really believe. I don't think Jesus told this parable to give us a specific picture of every detail of heaven and hell. Jesus talks about hell and all his teachings in the gospel, second to talking about his father. So if you want to know details about hell and heaven, go look through the gospels. And I promise you, you cannot come across flipping three pages without Jesus talking about what hell is, what it's going to be about, who it's for, why it was created. He talks about hell tremendous amount. I don't think this was the parable. He's trying to give everybody a great picture of what that final place of judgment is going to be like. But he was giving them some picture. He was saying that, hey, there will be this judgment. There will be a separation of peoples. And there will be a common theme from those that are separated from God. And I want you to listen what this common theme is because the rich man says it. It's in verse 26. Actually, verse 24. The first time we hear from the rich man, first time he speaks in this parable, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Let let. Let someone come and dip their finger in the, in the cool water and put it on my lips because this, listen, is not fair. That's literally what that means, have mercy on me. This is not fair. Please have mercy on me. My kids are 8 and 11, both boys. don't have any girls in my house except my wife. Uh, for the longest time, the standard of girls was lowered along until I met my wife. She is the new standard. But I have two boys, and all I do is think about the day when they're going to meet Lord along, and it scares me to death. Um, and it scares me to death for a lot of reasons, because I've never been a girl, but I know how boys are with girls, and that's what scares me to death. Um, and that's enough. But they're at, they're at, they're at an age where, where they like Dad. They still like Dad. You know, they still think Dad's relatively cool, which is really good, because there's going to be a day that when they get, like, this big, that that's not going to happen so much anymore. So right now, I can tell them just about anything. They're like, you know... Calvin and Hobbes, they're like Calvin right now. I can tell them, you know, the moon is a, is a big cheese pie, and they believe me. That's great. Dad said it, you know. And so they, they'll just about anything. The other day, we're sitting in the, in the living room, and my oldest, my 11-year-old, is, is gonna, wants to go with one of his friends and go down to this place called the Boardwalk that's in O'Fallon. It's a place with little stores and a little hangout place. And he's getting older, and so, you know, he's getting that, can ride his bike out of the neighborhood deal, you know, and not just stay in our little neighborhood. And so I'm like, sure, you can go to the Boardwalk with work. You know, we go through the whole, it's like listening to Mr. Cleaver talk to Beaver here. Well, Beaver, where are you going to be? And what time are you going to be? You know, I'm having those conversations in my head. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm Ward Cleaver. And so I, I realize after he leaves, you know, that Kate is sitting over my younger son. Kay, this is Will left. Kay, my younger son, sitting over in the stool. And he's doing his homework. And he's watching this whole conversation. And I kind of see him start to get misty. Will is like a monkey. He plays. He lives to play. Kate, on the other hand, a little more introspective. And, if, and I can, like, look at him like this. And Kate will start crying. Really, and it just drives me nuts. I'm like, man, man up, stop crying, come on. And he'll, he just starts getting teary, you know. So I see Kate over there starting to tear up, and I'm thinking, oh man, I gotta, gotta say something. So I said, Kate, come here. I said, what are you thinking? He says, and promise, this is what he said, it's not fair. And I promise you, if he said that one time, it's not sound like your dad. He said it a thousand. The favorite phrase out of his mouth is, it's not fair. I'm trying to teach him, okay? Not everything's fair, but this is one of those big, 
moments of teaching that he did himself. And I said, why is it not fair? And he said, well, Will gets to do a lot of things that I don't get to do. And he started crying. I'm thinking, well, slow down here, Trigger. Back up and hold the tears and then kind of try this on me again because I didn't understand half of what he said after the first thing. So it's not fair because Will's older. He gets to do a lot of things I don't do. And I said, okay, okay, I got that part. Start again. And so he got it all out this time. And he said, well, it's not fair because he's older and he gets to do things I don't get to do. And, 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 you know, he went on and gave his why it's not fair in the world, his thesis and little eight backing points and everything and footnoted it. And when I was finished listening to his, <laughs> his research paper on why it's not fair, I asked him, I said, well, have you ever been to the boardwalk? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, when did you go? I don't know. I've been two or three times. I said, no, not how many times. I said, when? He said, I don't know. And I said, he has no concept of time. That he's alive is a miracle because he has no concept of time. But I said... You're eight, right? And he said, yeah. I said, do you think you went to the boardwalk three months ago? Yeah, I think. Do you think you went to the boardwalk last Christmas? Yeah, I said, so you probably went when you were seven, right? And I said, do you think Will went to the boardwalk when he was seven? And you could see this. <laughs> and he's, he's going back in his head thinking. He think, well, I, I don't know. And I said, no, he didn't go to the boardwalk when he was seven. I said, so see, you've got to do something that he's not got to do. So why do you think Will never went to the boardwalk when he was seven? And he just, and then he said, because he didn't have an older brother. And I was like, ding, you win the prize. I said, here's the deal, little one. Because you're the younger one, there will be a lot of things you don't get to do at the same time your brother gets to do. You won't drive a car at the same time. But there are a lot of things you get to do because you have an older brother that he never got to do. And he's never going to get to do because he's not going to get to be seven again. And it's just like all of a sudden in his eyes, you just see this revelation moment of I'm not being cheated. And for those of you that are younger siblings in this room, you know what I'm talking about? I'm the youngest in the family. And my whole life was it's not fair. And I remember saying that so much so that when this little guy who's my youngest one says it to me, I think, thanks, Lord. I appreciate the reminder that, you know, everything I've ever said is coming back here. And it's true because we, we constantly live in that world. And, and as he said that to me that day and as he kind of cleared it all up for himself, he walked away and he had this idea and it said that, okay, I guess things are okay. I'll ask you this question again. Is God's judgment on your sin fair? And before you answer that question in your brain, contemplate what God's judgment is. Just according to this small parable right here that Jesus is telling us, he's talking about this intense, eternal suffering where there's separation from God forever. I've been reading this book called D-Day by a guy named uh, Ambrose, who's the guy who did all the Band of Brothers stuff. Um, I'm going to get to go to Europe this summer, and I'm a history nut, and so I'm going to get to go to Normandy. And so I wanted to read about D-Day, this big invasion that the... Americans and the British pulled off and invading Europe back in World War II, the big battle, three-quarters of a million men invading this beach. And I'm reading about this thing, and there's just all these firsthand accounts of these 18-year-old guys, 19-year-old guys, guys like some of you in this room that went into this battle, their very first time in a real battle, and just seeing all their friends. If you ever saw Saving Private Ryan, the first 20 minutes of that movie where all their friends are getting their heads blown off and shot in two, and people are dying in front of them, whole boats getting blown up. They're writing these first-hand accounts, and this one man telling his son about 20 years later in his journal said, I'm not afraid of hell because I've been there. And I, I will say this to those of you in the room that are, that are military, ex-military, or maybe you're in the military right now. I've, I've never been in the military. I played military a lot when I was a kid. 
Um, played Davy Crockett. I grew up in Texas, so Davy Crockett was our hero defending the Alamo and getting shot and dying off the wall. But I've never really been shot at. My son shot me in the face with a water um, gun that, you know, cleans the sidewalk, one of those high-power sprays. That's about the closest I've been to being shot. About put my eye out, but I didn't die. I didn't think I was getting my head blown off. And so I've never been in any kind of military combat, and I have no idea what that man been through or if you've been through that, what you went through. And I don't want to diminish it, but I do want to say this, that in all respectfulness to the man who wrote that, he doesn't have Christ's picture of what hell is. Because hell just isn't a place where you watch people in torment or you suffer, but it's a, or you suffer because someone else is suffering. It's a place where you suffer and everyone around you suffers and it never stops. One of the common themes of that book was when men got wounded, they said, just let me die. One of the common themes of hell that Jesus teach about is this. Please let it end and it never does. So I'll ask you the question again before you flippantly answer, especially if you've grown up in church, is hell a fair judgment from God for your sin? What would it be like for you to have to be in a place where you knew you were separated from God forever and you never could make your pain go away? Let me ask you a second question. Is hell a fair judgment for your friend's sin? And let's get specific and personal here. Some of you have parents in this room that don't know Christ. Don't follow Christ. They've not thrown their life and mercy on Christ. Some of you have sisters and little brothers. Some of you have maybe someone you're dating or someone you're married to that fill in the blank. And I'll ask you this question. Is it fair that God would judge the person you love to be separated from him forever? Suffering forever. And I'll ask you this quote, one last thought, and that's this. If the answer to that is yes, then why? If the answer to that is no, why? And I'm not going to give you all of it tonight. This isn't a sitcom. You don't get all your answers in 30 minutes in the Bible or anywhere else. Um, I think sometimes we read the Bible because, like, when we read Psalms, sometimes we think that David wrote the whole thing down in 10 minutes. Maybe he did. Every once in a while, if you're a songwriter, those things happen to you. But the majority of time, those are things that are a lifetime of processing. And so I want to give you a couple of things tonight that just will get your brain thinking and let you dig into the Word a little bit more. But here's, here's the two things. First one is this. In order to understand the, the, what is fair and what's not fair about God's judgment, you've got to understand sin first. And if you don't understand sin, you're never going to have a concept of what's fair and what's not. And I'll say this. I want to give you another word besides fair. And that was the word you saw in the video tonight. And the other word is this, justice. I think there's a big difference between the word justice and the word fair. You'll never see the word fair used in the Bible except in a derogatory sense. What you will see used in the Bible a lot is justice. Let's start with sin. What is sin? If you had to sit down with a friend who'd never been in a church before, how would you describe sin to them? How would, what would you say sin was? How, how would you put that into words for somebody? Well, some of you, if you read the Bible, you, you know Romans tells you, you know, wages of sin is death. And sometimes we have that. Or, and, and you've ever heard that sometimes we understand that sin is missing the mark. It's, it's not heading God's direction with what God wants us to do. Most people in our culture know sin as sins. In other words, they know that lying, cheating, stealing, all those things are sins. But let's not talk about sins for a second. What is sin? What if the person you were talking to, or what if it's you, didn't believe in this? What if you did not believe this existed? How would you try to, or it was real, or it was authority? How would you describe to somebody what sin is? You say, well, I couldn't do that without the Bible. Well, yeah, you can. Jesus did it all the time. Jesus rarely quoted scripture to people when he talked to them about sin, especially prostitutes and whores. 
because they, they didn't know the Hebrew, they didn't care about the Hebrew Bible, Ten Commandments. They, they were living in the middle of it. How would you describe sin to somebody? Let me give you a thought better than, it's not mine, it's not original, but here's a thought for you. That is this. Sin is, sin is finding your worth in any place but God. Sin is finding your worth in any place but God. Who God is and who God says you are. It's a starting point. What sin leads to is this. That heart of sin leads to, Jesus said, from your heart comes all these actions which lead to lying, cheating, stealing, killing, murdering, all those kind of things. And in God's eyes, sin is so gross and so abusive and so against who he is that God has to judge that. And we sometimes hear that, especially from our culture of tolerance and our place of of acceptance that we think, gosh, how can a loving, caring, just God send someone to a place where they're separated forever and they're in eternal suffering for it? How can that work? And then when it's as a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ and you've been in Christ for a while, sometimes you can divorce yourself from what hell really is. And I'm going to ask you tonight to get into the, the word a little bit and look at this rich man and hear his agony and hear Jesus describing hell, not as some theological concept, but as a real place. And ask yourself this question, is this fair? Is this just? And we go back to the sin question and listen, we listen to God talk about how gross and utterly despicable it is to his heart. And I'll ask you to bring a comparison to yours. Michael Devlin, name ring a bell? He's a guy that they found over in Kirkwood that had kidnapped the two kids. Kept one of them for about five years and the other one for about six months where he got caught. I have two little boys, 10 and 11 and 8. Um, when I think about what that man did to those two boys, there is, there is a, a thing that wells up inside me. And the only word I can put on it is this. If they were my kids, I would have wanted justice. I don't have any little girls, but if anybody in this room has a little sister... And your little sister was to be abducted and raped and killed and found in a bag. And your sister would be the theme for a CSI Miami someday. What would you feel? If your mom was sexually abused by somebody. I have a friend in our church that his mom, his 58-year-old mom, was sexually assaulted the other day by a 22-year-old man. And his whole family is struggling with what is justice in this situation. And listen, this is what I need you to hear. Every person on the face of this earth recognizes that justice is a real life and probably tangible thing that we all, that, that it's right. Whenever something gross and abusive happens to us or someone we care, everybody wants justice. Now, we may not all agree what the justice is. Some of us may want to put Michael Devlin in a chair and see him fry until his eyes pop out. Other of us must just say, may just say, let's put him in a jail cell for, for the rest of his life. But I promise you, nobody in this room that has ever had a little brother or, or is a parent that's had a kid would say, you know what? Let's just pat him on the back and tell him, you know what? Do better next time. We're sorry your parents screwed you up and that you're really a messed up man, but just go on back out in the culture and do it better next time. Try again. Second chance. None of us would want that. We would say that's not just. And yet when we look at God's justice, we think, hmm, is that just? 
And I want to ask you, what's the difference between God's justice and justice with Michael Devlin? The deal is this. What we think about Michael Devlin's sin is so gross and so abusive that there's no way we want this man to get off. And I'll say this to you. What God thinks about our sin is the same. Matter of fact, times 10,000. That's the beginning of our struggle with justice and God's justice. Because we don't understand sin. We don't understand how sinful we are. Here's the second thing, just and fair. This will kind of wrap this up. The word fair and the way we use it and the way it's used negatively in the Bible is like this. Equal, things are equal with all parties. In other words, what Cade wanted most, my little son, was to make sure that everything was equal between him and Will. If Will got to do something, I get to do something. And if we don't, it's not fair. What I wanted with the Lord along was fair. Years of torment, retardation. Barbie wanting to date me. That was not fair. I wanted equality. I wanted something to be fair. Justice has nothing to do with that. Justice has everything to do with this. With whatever the legal standard is being fulfilled. Now the problem with justice is this. In our country, who gets to decide what's the legal standard? You know? For some of you, when you turn 21, you realize, man, I can go get drunk. What a great deal. For some of you at 19, you didn't care that was the legal standard. You were going to go get drunk anyway. You thought that was a dumb law. Every day we get on the road. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't drink. Okay, I'll give you another one. You get on the road and you're going to make a decision tonight. Speed limit says 30 through the neighborhood you're going to drive out of here. And some of you are going to go 47. Listen, for those of you that are parents that have kids that are growing up, you're going to have a will in your back seat. He's going to look over your shoulder and go, Dad, you're going 43. Speed limit's 30. You're breaking the law. The only reason I ever wanted one of those big class rings, you know, that had the little stones on them so I could do what my dad did to me, roll that thing over and do this. Pow! <laughs> How fast am I going now? <laughs> I wouldn't do that. That's not fair. But I want to because I have a little... I have a little justice patrol in my backseat about how fast I drive. I am breaking the law because I deem that a stupid law to have to drive 30 through a neighborhood. So I drive 41 sometimes. What laws do you break that you deem just aren't just? Well, here's the deal. In God's law, he's putting down his character. God says don't lie because God is truth. God says don't kill because I'm life. Whenever you see a law in God's word, it is a reflection of God's character. It's not trying to take away something fun from you. God says don't commit adultery because marriage is a picture of what it is for you and I to have a relationship with God. Two, becoming one forever. Because it also causes a lot of damage in families. All of his laws are a reflection of his character. And so God lays down these laws and sometimes we look at them and we say they're not just. They're not they're not right, but all they are is a reflection of how holy God is and our desire to break them. All they are is a reflection of how sinful we are. And it comes back to this, and I'll ask you the question again. Is it fair God's judgment on your sin? I want you to hear the last couple of verses of this as we wrap up. Jesus says this about this story. 
he says to him, he says, if you will send someone to my family, because it's not fair for them either, for my brothers, they're going to they're going to end up in this place of torment, too. In verse 29, Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And again, Jesus shares the good news, the gospel in his story. Every time you see Jesus talking about who he is or who God is, Jesus shares the gospel. The gospel is not just, and I know Mark and, and Jason talk to you about this all the time because I, I, I spend a lot of time with these guys and I've listened to them preach when I'm, when I'm running. I put on the iPod and listen to Mark preach because I laugh. He makes me laugh. And so I, I run and listen to Mark and I giggle and I have a good time and he teaches me things because that's how I grow because I don't get to hear myself teach and go, wow, that's really good. Or that moved me because God's doing that in me long before. So in order for God to feed me, I have to listen to other people. Long story you didn't need to hear. But anyway, I listen to Mark. And one of the things I know he does is talk to you guys about what the gospel is. And the gospel is not just how do you get saved. The gospel is God's great picture of restoring us back to the place God created us to be. And then it's to reflect his glory and to be an image bearer of God. And the gospel is God's great design as Jesus comes to stand between men and say, this is your responses to me. There's two ways we have to answer the God question in our heart, the sin, that maybe we don't understand what it is, but what's going on there. There's two ways all of us have to respond to that. The first way is this. You, you looked at it in the parable of the two sons, the very religious way. And the very religious way says this. I will, I will do whatever it takes to please you. I, if I do this and I do this and I do this, then you will accept me. And that is how most of you in this room, if you grew up in any kind of religion, operated in your life. And some of you may still operate that way. You believe this, that if I obey, then God will accept me. Jesus entered a culture that everyone thought that. Pharisees, Sadducees, all these people Jesus telling these stories to believe this. If we obey, we get accepted. But the other part of the culture, the prostitutes, the whores, and all the other people that were coming to him, which by the way, the sinners and tax collectors where he started these stories, believe something else. I don't care if God even exists. I'll be my own God. Maybe you've lived that way too because that's the only other way we can respond to God. The question God question in our heart is to say this. I don't care if there's a God. I'll be my own God. I'll accept myself. You're good, dadgummit, and people like you. And that's how we deal with a God question. It's either very religiously or very irreligiously. And Jesus walks into the middle of that and says, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Both of these things keep you separated from me. If you try to do it yourself, you're still not accepted by God. If you say God doesn't exist, you're still not accepted by God. And Jesus came into the middle of it and said this. Only through my life and my death and my resurrection, which he just points out here at the end of the story, can you be made acceptable before God. And I want you to hear this because this is the place where we start embracing whether God's judgment is fair or just. I'll say this to you. The gospel is not fair. Think about it. Was it fair for God? Put yourself in Cade's brain for a second and ask yourself this question. Was the gospel fair for God? What did God have to give up for you and I to be acceptable to him and to give up his son? What did Jesus have to give up? Jesus had to give up heaven, never being bound by eternity, never being bound by physical space, never being bound by anything because he was God and he was divine, puts himself in a human body, comes to this earth and lives a sinless life and on the cross becomes your sin. And gave up intimate communion with his father for a brief moment on that cross as he became our sin. And suffered what Jesus just talked about in this parable. Immense suffering and separation.
judgment for sin. I'll ask you this question. Was that fair? I don't think so. Let's flip it to our side. What do you get because of what Jesus did? You get God. You get to stand before God, as it says in Ephesians 1.4, holy and blameless before God. You get Jesus and his life, the life he lived and the life he knows to live inside you. And not, not, not only that, but now, because of what Christ did, you stand acceptable before God. And now you can obey. In religion, we obey to be accepted. In the gospel, we are accepted. And we start figuring out how to obey and joy. We start figuring out how to love each other right. We start figuring out how to, how to, how to serve people. We start figuring out how to, how to forgive people. We start figuring out how to give our stuff because our stuff isn't where our worth lies. That's sin, by the way, again. Jesus is where our worth lies. When you give tonight and you go by the joy box, you give because God has given you everything. And the gospel says this, Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. What do you have? Everything. Is it fair? What Jesus gave and what you got, I'll ask you this simple question. Is it a fair exchange? No. And if you stop remembering that and believing that and embracing that deep in your heart, it's a lot easier to take this statement the next time you get in that situation. God, this is not fair because ultimately what you're saying is, God, I'm not sure you're fair. And if you need the example, go back to the cross. If you need the power to live in that, live at the cross. And remind yourself from this story that you are just like Lazarus and you are just like the rich man. That's this. You are completely sinful. And the moment you and I forget that, we walk in pride. And we walk not having any idea how great and holy God is in his mercy. At the same time, though, you're fully accepted. You're more stunningly accepted than you can ever imagine. Girls, you're more beautiful to God than you could ever imagine. Larda Long has nothing on you. The biggest thing I remember about that story as I got off the toilet was this. And I want you to hear this. I said to myself, it's not fair. And this is the second thing I said. What would have been different if I would have known the way she felt about me way back then? Way back like in eighth grade or ninth grade, if I'd have known she had a crush on me, or let's say the beginning of senior year, how would I have related? What would I have done? How would I have pursued her if I'd have known if she would have come up to me and said, hey, I chose you. I went to a high school that had 865 people in my senior class. If she'd have walked up to me and said, hey, there's 400 boys in our class, I choose you. What would I have done? Would I have said, no, thanks. Are you crazy? I'd have jumped out of my skin to be near her. Can you hear this as we pray tonight? As we get ready to respond to God's greatness and His mercy, hear this, listen. God chose you. And, and not because you're cute. Not because you have some kind of great worth. Not because of something you can offer. Not because of your parents. Not because of what you did in school or what your job is. Not because you can fill in the blank. God chose you. And I'll add this thought. It's not fair. But listen, it is just. You're struggling right now with something that's going on in your life that's not fair. There's thousands of things you could be struggling with. A relationship, 
something with your parents, somebody that's dying, somebody that's in this situation, I'll say this, the place to go for comfort and peace is the cross. It's where the gospel reminds you you are so accepted even though you're so sinful. And it's not fair, but it is just. I'm a just God, he says. I think it's part of the reason Jesus told this parable. I pray tonight it would send you back into the word to see the justice of God, that it's a good thing, it's a right thing. God, we pray in your name. Pray in the great name of Jesus that you would remind us how just you are. God, we don't understand, we don't even pretend to understand how holy you are, how sinful we are. But God, I pray that tonight, at the foot of the cross, we could see the gospel again. It is not fair what it cost your son, and it's definitely not fair what we got. It's not fair what we get every day, your presence living in us, the power to obey and joyfully and to have a life that finds worth in you and not in our stuff, not in our failures, not in our successes, not in our respect, not in our relationships, but in you. It never changes. God, for the cries that have gone out in this room this week or this month, it's not fair. God, would you, would you allow us to honestly take those to the cross tonight? I pray for you, believer, that you would find power in the gospel tonight to rely on the fact that God is just and he's good. I pray that you'd be honest enough to come before him, even as we sing. If you need to stand, you need to kneel, just let's respond to God.